seem incompetent and for Trump appointing sack. You may recall that last week Brett Blanton sat before a committee hearing in the House of Representatives and the ranking members from the Democratic side just laid into the guy. This Office of Inspector General's report, which outlined the misconduct by the architect of the Capitol, Brett Blanton, came out in 2020. It was not holding back. This is what it was titled. Office of Inspector General suspected violations include architect of the Capitol, standards of conduct, government ethics, fleet management, authority and responsibilities of the Office of Inspector General, and cooperation of architect of Capitol employee policies, and Title 18 U.S.C. Section 1001. In other words, they were accusing him of criminal conduct, and the big title was J. Brett Blanton, architect of the Capitol, abused his authority, misused government property, wasted taxpayer money, among other substantiated violations. Substantiated violations. And again, this report came out in 2022, and Democrats were calling for Brett Blanton's resignation back then, and President Biden terminated Brett Blanton today after he appeared uh, before a committee last week. And here are the things that Brett Blanton did. It's so Trumpy when you break all, when you break all of this stuff down. This is what it was. So unauthorized use of vehicles. So he was given a uh, 2018 Jeep Grand Cherokee that the Office of the uh, Architect used. Um, he was then given a 2020 Ford Explorer that the architect of the Capitol was given to lease, then a 2021 Ford Explorer ST. And then what he ended up doing with it, using all of the government uh, vehicles for personal use. One of the ways the investigation was started was that his wife and daughter were seen basically driving around these government vehicles throughout town. They drove the government vehicles to Florida. They took the government vehicles wherever the hell they wanted to, abusing our taxpayer dollars. Oh, here's one of the aspects of it as well. Again, just how Trumpy this is. So just to remind you what the architect of the Capitol does. The architect of the Capitol is responsible for the maintenance, operation, development, and preservation of the Capitol complex. Uh, Blanton was the 12th person to occupy that role. But guess what about Blanton? Probably doesn't shock you knowing that Donald Trump appointed him. This was the issue. Unlike the past appointees for architect of the Capitol, unlike the past appointees, Blanton was not an architect by trade and had little experience with historic preservation and restoration projects. Just think about that. Trump appointed the architect of the Capitol, whose job is to be an architect and be involved in preservation projects, someone who was not an architect and had little to no experience in historic preservation and restoration projects, and someone who wanted to use this position as their fiefdom to just ride around and cruise around and give their family government cars so that they could use them for their own personal use. Oh, now, th th how Trumpy and George santos -y is this. One of the other issues in the Office of Inspector General's report, misrepresentation of position. Basically, when you're the architect of the Capitol, um, when you're assigned these vehicles, they're outfitted with emergency equipment packages including law enforcement lights and sirens, a United States Capitol Police radio and satellite phone. Um, and here's the thing. 
one of the things that Blanton was accused of doing and that his family was accused of doing is pretending that Blanton was a United States Capitol Police officer and claiming that he was law enforcement and using the lights and sirens of the vehicle to basically pretend that he was a cop. Right? Is there anything more Trumpy than and more like George Santos than just pretending to be a position that you're not? So he'd run around town and act like he's a cop to try to get all the benefits or whatever that you know that cops get to be treated like a cop. You don't get more Trumpy than that. Oh, here's additional ethics violation. So uh, this is from Blanton's wife. So when the Capitol building was shut down because of COVID, one of the things that the Office of Inspector General's investigation found the following. Throughout the investigation, the Office of Inspector General obtained multiple social media posts created by Blanton's wife, including photographs of congressional license plates and a photograph of her and Blanton on September 30th, 2020, from the dome of the U.S. Capitol with a comment stating, quote, this is happening. All patriots welcome. Private message me. The specific comment was then later edited to read, Patriots equal Americans who love America, not a candidate. On the same date, an additional photograph taken from the U.S. Capitol was posted with the comment, Contact me for a private tour. All patriots accepted. So giving private tours to uh, people uh, while the Capitol building is shut down and using their position to brag about giving people special access that the public could not uh, receive. Um, and one of the other things, too, that was certainly not doing any favors for uh, Brett Blanton, again, a Trump appointee, would it shock you that Blanton was not at the Capitol building on January 6th? Was it not at the Capitol building on January 6th? 2021. That's right. He was not there at all. Um, I want to show you. This is also extra Trumpy. So this was from the committee hearing from last week, and this is a Democratic line of questioning. This is from a Democratic ranking member, Joe Morelli, who asks Brett Blanton. Basically, it gives Blanton an opportunity to try to explain himself. So why were your family members driving the car? Blanton, in typical Trump MAGA fashion, throws his family under the bus and basically says, well, you're going to have to call my family here. You know, stunning. He basically said, investigate my family, call my family, call my little daughter and call my wife to, the, to testify before you. I don't know why they were using public property and public vehicles. Maybe they need to sit before this committee. And then President Biden had enough of this. Biden terminated him right away. Here, let's play this clip. Play it. Hey, I'm Vegetable Man. Mascots won't get people to like vegetables. Just turn them into delicious carrot chips. I have a surprise for you. I have a surprise for you. What? Let's say this at the same time. Okay, three, two. Uh, let me just uh, go on. I, I, The notion that um, you need the, the car to be with you at all times to be tethered to it. Can you explain how um, there have been, uh, at least in the Inspector General's report, uh, times when the vehicle has been used by members of your family where you're not in the car? How would you have responded to emergencies in those circumstances? So, so I, I'll have to say that you would have to address that with members of my family because the times that 
that I knew when my wife drove the vehicle and my daughter drove the vehicle were the times that I was in the vehicle. So your testimony is that the family members have never driven the vehicle without you being in the vehicle? I'm saying that that would be something that would have to be discussed with them. I will also say... Well, you're not suggesting we bring members of your family in to testify before us, are you? No. I'm just saying that when, when my daughter was interviewed, who was 17 at the time of the allegation... Thank you, sir. Um, but just to be clear, your testimony is that at no point are you aware of family members using... Uh, the vehicle without you being a passenger in the vehicle? Uh, my recollection is no. Well, let me just observe that I think if you felt the need to go to South Carolina or Florida on vacation and have a car with you because it needs to be with you at all times, and yet uh, there are allegations, pretty serious ones, that members of your family use it without your presence in the vehicle, it seems to undercut the argument. With that, uh, I'll yield back, Mr. Chairman. And, of course, Kevin McCarthy and the MAGA Republicans try to pretend like Brett Blanton's not their guy, right? Because they're just a bunch of gaslighters. So Kevin McCarthy goes, The architect of the Capitol, Brett Blanton, no longer has my confidence to continue his job. He should resign or President Biden should remove him immediately. Your buddy Trump appointed him. He's your, he's your buddy Trump's guy. He's a typical MAGA Republican. And, by the way, Biden... Terminated him right away. Quick, decisive action. Get somebody who's competent in that job. But it just goes to show you, at every level of a Trump appointee, we're not talking about even close to competent. You don't want the best people. Because everything Trump says is a lie. Because i got the best people. Everybody who Trump brings on is the worst. Incompetent, corrupt, malicious, criminal. You go on, they're all like this. Every single one of them. Just goes to show you who the MAGA Republicans are, but I say to Brett Blanton, good riddance, traitor. I'm Ben Micellis from the Mighty Duck Network. Until next time, hit the subscribe button. We are on our way to one billion listeners. Oh, my gosh. How the Holocaust happens. I don't know. Ah, sounds like an important... It's 1932. You're a young, poverty-stricken, working-class German with a starving family. You haven't had a job for months. Your savings have been wiped out. You're about to be evicted. You fought and saw the unimaginable during the First World War. Two million of your countrymen, men you and your family often knew, died, sometimes horrifically. 1.5 million disabled veterans struggle to survive up and down the country. Addiction, alcoholism, prostitution, suicide, they're all endemic. Germany has been made to sign a humiliating peace treaty, pay unreasonable and economically devastating reparations to America, Britain and France, and cede territory on all of its borders. Then, to top it off, the Great Depression hits. Liberalism and democracy are failing. Hyperinflation reaches 1,000% per month. Even money is becoming worthless. Election after election fail to reach a majority. Parliament, that's the Reichstag, 
is unable to govern. Conservatives, liberals, communists, authoritarians, the church, the army, they're all competing for power. Moral values and attitudes are blurred too. Religious belief continues to decline. Women's liberation sweeps Europe. Morals loosen. The jazz scene hits. To many, though, all of this depravity seems to be contributing to what's happening. Germany is at risk of extinction. Enter Adolf Hitler. Charming, charismatic, seemingly brilliant. After being elected in 1933, he quickly revitalizes the German economy. Problem after problem seem to be miraculously fixed. You get a job. Roads are built. Reparations are halted. A wave of euphoria sweeps across the nation. Life in Germany becomes good again. Why? Because Hitler and the National Socialists stand against all the things that were causing its destruction. The greedy capitalists, godless communists, determined to overthrow the state, conservative enemy countries abroad, and an enemy within that connects all of these things, that's responsible for them all, that wants you dead. The Jews, for almost Ten years, you're surrounded by anti-Semitic propaganda and conspiracy. The Jews control Wall Street, Hollywood, America, Britain, the Soviet Union. Then, the war starts. They threaten to take all of it away from you. All these things you've gained. You're too old to fight in the army. But you're drafted into the reserve police force. One morning, on duty in occupied Poland, Raised from your bed and driven to a nearby village. Your commander, Major Wilhelm Trapp, known to you affectionately as Papa Trapp, is pale faced, has a choking, shaky voice and tears in his eyes. He informs you of your orders. Remember, he says, back home bombs are falling on your wives and daughters too. The Jews in the village were involved with the partisans, the enemy. It's us or them. They need to be rounded up and taken to the work camps. But those not able to work, women, children, the elderly, must, unfortunately, be shot. Trap makes you an offer. You can be excused from this task if you wish. You look briefly at your friends, but don't take up the offer. Instead, you step forward, take the men, women, and children into the forest, order them onto the ground, aim, and pull the trigger. Two million men, women, and children would be murdered this way, and at least four million in the death camps and gas chambers. And statistically speaking, you would become a murderer in that way too. You would participate in the Holocaust. What drives ordinary, everyday people to become mass killers? Men and women, but usually men, like you and me, 
The Holocaust was not perpetrated solely by a few sadistic psychopaths, but by tens of thousands of everyday Germans, Poles, Frenchmen, Austrians, Slovakians. In fact, much of Europe took part. If any of us could be motivated under the right conditions to become mass serial killers, how can we protect against the threat? How might we inoculate our societies and cultures from descending into genocide? One estimate puts the number of victims of genocide and democide, that's murder by government, at 169 million in the 20th century alone. Stalin, Mao, the Khmer Rouge, Rwanda, the Congo, Armenia. What's undeniable is that we're a disturbingly violent species. And there are even more distressing questions. What makes the 20th century, the most advanced century in history, the most genocidal too? As the journalist Mark Bowden has put it, the Holocaust disturbs us so much because none of the things we associate with modern civilization, peace, industry, technology, education, frees us from the dark side of the human soul. He said that, just as there is evil at the heart of every man, there is evil at the heart of even the most civilized human society. And the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas has said that a veil of naivety was torn up with the Holocaust. Something happened that was unimaginable until then, which ended the optimism of what seemed like the inexorable progress of Western Enlightenment. I want to focus on a kind of inoculation against that kind of evil, a moral vaccine. A social psychologist Thomas Blass puts it this way, what psychological mechanism transformed the average and presumably normal citizens of Germany and its allies into people who would carry out or tolerate unimaginable acts of cruelty against their fellow citizens who were Jewish, resulting in the death of six million of them. But first, a definition. The UN says that genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group as such. A. Killing members of the group. B. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So what are the psychological, cultural, social and political factors that might lead ordinary men and women to commit crimes of this scale? We'll look here at a number of factors. Propaganda, outgrouping, rationalisation, authority, conformity and compartmentalisation or distancing. But rather than the Nazi leaders, those ordinary men might be a good place to start. That scene of Major Trapp tearfully informing his men of their duty did actually happen. Trapp was a police officer who commanded Reserve Police Battalion 101 of the Order Police. He was executed for war crimes in 1948. The Order Police were made up of ordinary Germans. Two 
to be conscripted into the army. They were around 33 to 48 years old, predominantly working class, but also too old to have only known Nazi propaganda, as they were raised in the democratic era of the Weimar Republic. These ordinary policemen joined SS units called the Einsatzgruppen, who were tasked with following the army into occupied territories in the east, particularly Russia and Poland. They were to assist the SS in a number of jobs and, as their name suggests, keep order, rounding up Polish soldiers, guarding camps, organising equipment and, ultimately, executing enemy soldiers, partisans and Jews. Stalin had given the order for partisan warfare, which made it easier politically for Hitler to order communists in occupied Russia to be immediately executed because they were a threat. The nation, he argued, was being attacked from all sides. Germany was at war, and as one order noted, the men are to be instructed continuously about the political necessity of the measures. In June 1942, Police Battalion 101 was sent for guard duty to a town called Lublin in Poland, where around 40,000 Jews lived. In July, Major Trapp was ordered to round up the 1,800 Jews living in a nearby village. Working-age men were to be sent to a labour camp. The elderly, women and children would be immediately shot. When Trapp's lieutenant was informed of the order, he requested another assignment, insisting that he would not participate in an action in which defenceless men and women would be shot. Before being told of the details, the men were informed that be doing some work. One sergeant told them that he didn't want to see any cowards. They arrived at the village at dawn. Trapp assembled his men and said that any of the older men who didn't feel up to the task could step down. One man stepped forward. Another ten or twelve followed. They were dismissed. Almost five hundred men remained. They were to round up the Jews and take them to the marketplace. Trapp didn't join his men. He couldn't bear the sight. One of the men reported hearing Trapp say that, Oh God, why did I have to be given these orders? He apparently paced back and forth. Another officer reported that Trapp had told him that the job didn't suit him, but the orders were orders. One said that when he and Trapp were alone, he sat on a stool and wept bitterly. The tears really flowed, he said. Another confirmed that he wept like a child. Meanwhile, the air was filled gunshots and screams. The doctor explained to the men that shooting victims above the shoulders and into the backbone would result in an infant death. The executions lasted all day. Alcohol was supplied, but many aimed too high or too low. One man said that when he shot, the entire skull exploded. Brains and bones flew everywhere. Another said that the entire skull, or at least the rear skull cap, was torn off and blood, bone splinters and brain sprayed everywhere. After a while, many of the men just couldn't take it anymore. One policeman simply slipped off, another avoided taking his turn shooting. Those who resisted were called weaklings but suffered no consequences for not participating. Some hid in a priest's garden. Another said after one shooting, his nerves were totally finished. One man said he had become so sick that I simply couldn't anymore. Another ran into the woods and vomited. Many were sick, in fact, and the word repugnant was used a lot. One said he'd go crazy if 
and had to do it again. Some shot 10 or 20 Jews before they were asked to be relieved. One man said that his companion was such a terrible shot that the backs of heads were torn off and brain sprayed everywhere. He simply couldn't watch any longer. This is the testimony of some 200 men tried in a German court after the war. When they were finished, the bodies were left in the woods and the men returned to the barracks, depressed, angered, embittered, and shaken, they said. None of them talked, none ate. They simply drank. In court, it was said that after only a brief period, the commandos of the Einsatzgruppen got into considerable the members were in the long run not up to the mental strain caused by the mass shootings. There were disputes, refusals to obey orders, drunken orgies, but also serious psychological illnesses. Even Heinrich Himmler, commander of the SS and one of the architects of the Holocaust, was distraught after watching the execution of a hundred men in Minsk. Another SS officer had said to him, Look at the eyes of the men in this commando. How deeply shaken they are. These men are finished for the rest of their lives. But the men soon got used to killing. But by the end of 1942, they'd executed at least 6,500 Jews and deported 42,000. New documentary. gas chambers. Once the initial massacres had ended, the Jew hunts began, the searching for runaways in the villages and forests. They were so frequent that the men described them as their daily bread. By the time the war was over, only a minority, 10 to 20 percent of Police Battalion 101 had abstained from killing. And over the course of their service, they became increasingly efficient killers. The massacre at Josephos was typical of an early problem for the Nazi leadership. The men seemed to find killing innocent humans repugnant and difficult. Even Himmler struggled with the sight of the mass death. So it was quickly established that later executions would involve a division of labor, so as to ease the psychological burden for the killers. This, the historian Christopher Browning writes, allowed the men to become increasingly efficient and callous executioners. The literature on genocide research in general supports this, that initial executions are usually distressing, but the distress quickly subsides if the subsequent while in the minority, some actually develop a pleasure from killing over time. Holy prisoners being marched off to Nazi prison and eventual extermination. For the Nazi master race theory called wiping out so-called inferior race. And in village after village, local Jews point out loyal Polish neighbors.
similar or do gassing of victims, whether in mobile gas farms or in the death camps, so that there would be less direct stressful involvement in men? Division of labour reduced the burden as some worked on the trains, some were guards, others built the gas, some worked in offices as accountants, while others moved the victims into the chambers. The shootings by the Einsatzgruppen were divided too. Some would round up, others would strip prisoners, and the actual shooting was often done by Eastern Europeans under German occupation, making men cogs in a machine diminished individual personal responsibility. Similarly, historian Daniel Goldhagen has argued that the steps towards genocide were incremental, so as to reduce the resistance that would have been felt if all of the steps had been carried out at once. He said that verbal assaults led to physical assault, both the results of millennia of anti-Semitism in Europe. Then legal and administrative measures, like the 1935 Nuremberg Laws that deprived Jews of rights and forbid the marrying of Jews and Germans, forced the Nazis pushed Jews to emigrate. Then there was forced resettlement. Six physical separation in the ghettos. One study has shown, for example, that murder rates were higher in the more ghettoized areas. Then starvation, debilitation, disease, slave labor, and finally death marches and genocide. Compartmentalizing and incremental actions reduces individual responsibility in an act that seems to be much larger than you. But does this really explain much? Men and women still knew what they were doing, what they were partaking in. They still pulled the triggers. So maybe they were just following orders. In his classic study of the French Revolution, Gustave Le Bon argued that crowd psychology differs from individual psychology for two reasons. First, anonymity can result in the diminishing of personal and individual responsibility. Responsibility becomes shared so that each individual is more protected. The Nazis, for example, made it law that their soldiers in Russia would be absolved from any wrongdoing when executing anyone suspected of being anti-German. Anonymity and the protection of the group meant that the feeling of personal responsibility shrank. The second factor he identified was mimesis, that in a crowd, actions by individuals, shouting, chanting, clapping, attacking, seem to be copied more readily. The psychologist Irvin Yanis coined the word groupthink in the 1970s. He described groupthink as a mode of thinking that people engage in when they are deeply involved in a cohesive in-group, when members striving for unanimity override their motivation to realistically appraise alternative courses of action. There's a human tendency to want to agree, to conform with your in-group. If a group of friends is deciding on a takeaway or a restaurant, you don't want to be the one to object. You don't want to be the one to cause a problem. The sociologist George Simmel has described how the desire to stay in an in-group motivates the fear of being censored or excluded by that group. But this has another effect. It 
also increases the chance that individuals will want to distance themselves from an out-group so as to prove loyalty to the in-group. The desire for conformity seems to be a universal of human experience. And when that conformity is compounded with authority, the impulse to obey increases. In his study of Police Italian 101, Christopher Browning calls on Sam Milton's famous experiment in which participants are ordered to give supposedly painful shots after screaming in the next room. If the participants hesitated, afraid the research requires that you continue is enough to convince 64% of them to continue to shock those wired up to the highest possible pain threshold. Milgram was directly influenced by the Holocaust. He concluded after the experiment that men are let to kill with little difficulty which fits nicely into the narrative that many were only following the law of the land or only following orders. During his trial in Jerusalem, for example, one of the architects of the Holocaust, Adolf Eichmann, who was tasked with organising transport across the Rhine, claimed that he was only following orders. The philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote when commenting on the trial that most were not sadists or killers by nature. On the contrary, a systematic effort was made to weed out those who derived physical pleasure from what they did. Most were normal, everyday men and women, complying with the law of their country. ...together with others during the period 1939-1945 caused the killing of millions of Jews in his capacity as the person responsible for the execution of the Nazi plan for the physical extermination of the Jews known as the final solution of the Jewish problem. Milgram's approach is what social psychologists call situational, that individuals are moved by the external pressures of the situation that they find themselves in. If a scientist asks you to shock someone for an experiment, you're likely to conform because the scientist is a trusted symbol of authority and wisdom. But there's a problem here. The participants in Milgram's experiment clearly thought what they were doing was right, at least in some way. But it was the scientific experiment about learning that the pain was secondary to the benefit of what was being learned, that they didn't think they were permanently harming someone, that there was some kind of greater good, and that the scientists were trustworthy. This is clearly not the same as the murder of the senseless children. Now, it could be argued that during the war in Nazi Germany is much, much greater than in Milgram's laboratory. As we've seen, conformity is a powerful force. And those who didn't do what they were comrades do the dirty work. They risk being ostracized, 
suggestions, isolated, losing their support network in a horrific, totalizing war. And authority, punishment, court martialing, the second death, the next crime, the surely difficult to exist. Absolutely no cases have been found of anyone being punished for refusing to follow orders to kill Jews. Zero. In fact, as we've seen with Police Battalion 101, many were able to avoid killing. So the argument that the desire to conform to authority total is insufficient. Even for those that did, the question was, who did they think they were conforming to, and what did they think they were conforming to? Did they believe it was evil that conformed anyway? Or did they think that their superiors were wise and knew what they were doing, like Milgram scientists? Does the perpetrator still not have to believe that they're making the right choice? Someone pulling Forced marches led to many perishing. 
in the summer, there were long, hot days without water, and in the winter, short, cold days without food. One officer told a policeman in Battalion 101 that nothing could be done with such people. Another said the Jews were not going to escape their fate anyway. One justified killing a child by telling themselves that they survive without their mother. And most diversely, health itself could be rationalised, not if the health of the individual, but the health of the nation. Before the war, the Nazis had begun the two war programs, euthanized and murdering men and children with insecurity, diseases, and mental illness. They were described as mercy killings. The death camps in Poland were run by doctors drafted from this T4 program who had already been using gas because it was cheap, quick, and unalarming and humane for the victims who thought they were going for a shower. Eichmann's lawyer described the gas chambers as a medical matter. When questioned on this by the judge, he said that it was indeed a medical matter, since it was prepared by physicians. It was a matter of insulinity as a medical matter. In these ways, executions were often rationalised as the most humane thing to do for people who just wouldn't survive anyway, or were damaging to the health of the nation. But again, Twisted rationalizations like this were not enough. The justifications for Nazi ideology and anti-Semitism went much deeper and had dominated Germany since Hitler came to power in 1933. So how powerful was Nazi ideology and its propaganda as an incitement to murder? Propaganda, philosopher Jason Stanley writes, uses the language of virtuous ideals to unite people behind otherwise objectionable ends. Mm. The order police undertook a basic training that included a month-long course on ideological education. Topics included maintaining the purity of blood and the Jewish question in Germany. Pamphlets and training films were distributed to troops throughout the war. Before being sent to Russia, the Einsatzgruppen were given special training with SS figures who gave them pep talks on the War of Destruction, one with SS leader Reinhard Heydrich himself. But the Nazi propaganda machine had existed long before the war. When the Nazis came to power, they immediately created a new Ministry for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, the RMDP. Hitler, the artist leader of the New Reich, was the chief storyteller, and Josef Goebbels ran the ministry. The RMVP included the press, publishing houses, writers, theatres, radio, film, music, in fact, all culture. At noon every day, the press conference issued press directives and topical words of the day, dictating which stories to be covered and details like the presentation and the language to be used. The free press immediately. 200 social democratic newspapers and 25 communist papers were closed. Otto Dietrich, the Nazi press chief, placed all other publications under government control. Editors had to be Aryan, of course. Moreover, the Nazi party actually purchased newspapers and publishing houses themselves, and by 1939 controlled 82% of newspapers. The Franzea publishing house became the largest publisher in the world.
Large Word of the Week posters were designed to be displayed in public squares, kiosks and shop windows. The posters, officials were informed, must not be absent anywhere. The Word of the Week must penetrate every last community in the nation and should always be in the pedestrian field of vision. The propagandists drew on Hitler's mind drawing up the basic laws of Hitler's ideology, simplification, repetition, appeal to the emotions, contrasting simple good and evil. Long, one design express simple emotional rhythm. In Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote that all propaganda should be popular and should adapt its intellectual level to the receptive ability of the least intellectual of those whom it is desired to address. Thus, it must sink its mental elevation deeper in proportion to the numbers of the mass whom it has to grip. The receptive ability of the masses is very limited, and their understanding is small. On the other hand, they have a great power of forgetting. This being so, all effective propaganda must be confined to a very few points, which must be brought out in the form of slogans. Posters, leaflets, pamphlets were all produced in their millions. All soldiers were given access to a radio, and in short, for seven years before the war, Nazi propaganda was ubiquitous in an environment where Hitler could be seen to do no wrong. Just like Trump. The report list the surviving inmates is representing every European nationality. It says the camp was founded when the Nazi party first came into power in 1933 and has been in continuous operation ever since, although its largest population dates from the beginning of the present war. One estimate puts the camp's normal complement at 80,000. In the official report, the Buchenwald camp is termed an extermination factory. The means of extermination? Starvation complicated by hard work, abuse, beatings, and torture. Incredibly crowded sleeping conditions and sicknesses of all types. Bodies stacked one upon the other were found outside the crematory. The Nazis maintained a building at the camp for medical experiments and vivisections with prisoners as guinea pigs. Few who entered the experimental buildings ever emerged alive. Propaganda was central to the dissemination of the Nazi ideology, which, at its core, was an ideology of purity and unification. The Nazis believed that a pure German nation, led by the singular will of a leader, would rid it of division, producing a natural, efficient and utopian society. National Socialism was the doctrine then of blood, soil and race, and Goebbels wrote in his diary that the Jew is the enemy and destroyer of blood-based unity. Instead of a pure nation, Goebbels wrote in his most famous essay, Why We Are Enemies of the Jews, Germany had become an exploitation colony of international Jewry. Jews would have no place and would have no shared interest in a unified and cohesive German community. Of course, anti-Semitism is mankind's oldest prejudice, dating back to the foundations of Christianity. The Jews, Christ-killers, rejected Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament 
as an older, outdated religion that Christianity was meant to supersede, the Jews became a natural outgroup for Christians. An early leader of the church, John Christotum, wrote in the 5th century that where Christ killers gather, the cross is ridiculed, God blasphemed, the Father unacknowledged, the Son insulted, the grace of the Spirit rejected. If the Jewish rites are holy and venerable, our way of life must be stopped. But if our way is true, as indeed it is, there's a fraudulent. Jewish people were stateless, had no allegiance to the nation, to the church, to the race, lived in a culturally different way, and so, over the centuries, became an easy lightning rod, scapegoat. Jews have been banished, tortured, converted, and killed across Europe in countless episodes for centuries and centuries. Pogroms in Russia, for example, were motivated by conspiracy theories that Jews murdered Christian children. But it took social Darwinism and racial ideology, the survival of the fittest race, eugenics and the desires for racial purity in the 19th century, for anti-Semitism to develop into the modern form it took in Germany. The Nazis were not only motivated by the idea of a natural necessity of racial purity, but by a powerful conspiracy theory that Jews were plotting to take over the world. Anti-Jewish policies were often portrayed as being a response to Jewish aggression, giving the impression that it was the Jews that were the aggressor and Germany that was the victim. In 1933, the first year of Hitler's rule, anti-Nazi boycotts was organised by Jewish groups around the world as a response to Hitler's rise to power. Hitler responded with an official Nazi boycott of Jewish shops, and stormtroopers stood menacingly guard at Jewish shop doors. The Nuremberg Laws were passed in 1935, forbidding the marriage of Jews and Germans, and stripping Jews of their rights as citizens. And in 1937, a German diplomat was murdered by a 17-year-old Jewish refugee, whose family had been persecuted by the Nazis. The response was crystal the night of broken glass, a widespread pogrom across Germany that saw almost a hundred Jews murdered, countless synagogues and Jewish businesses vandalised, torched or destroyed, and 3,000 Jews taken to concentration camps for their own protection, they were told. Anti-Semitic actions then were presented by Hitler as defensive. The Nazis were simply heroes preventing the Judeo-Bolshevik domination of the world. Jews, on the other hand, were depicted as having total control of the Soviet Union, of American government, of Wall Street, of Britain. The trick was to consistently associate the Jews with the aggressors and Germans as being in a heroic battle surrounded on all sides and victimised by the rest of the world. The perpetrators of genocide often see themselves as the victims. After the First World War, Germany was forced by America, Britain and France into what many historians have called a harsh, unfair and punishing agreement to pay reparations for the war. The Treaty of Versailles 
stipulated that Germany take full responsibility for the war, make repayments to the Allies, and seize German land at its borders to France, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. This was one of the catalysts for Hitler's rise to power. On top of this, Throughout the 1920s and early 30s, Germany was, as we've seen, in chaos. In election after election, no majority or coalition could be formed between competing parties. Liberals, conservatives, authoritarians, communists, the church, the army, they all vied for power. After Hitler was elected, setting on fire the Reichstag gave the impression that the country was on its knees. We just have to imagine the capital or the Houses of Parliament being burned down today. Then, after all of this, the war came. Destruction, death, poverty, hunger, desperation. Psychologist Irvin Stubbs' research on genocide shows that periods like this are a consistent factor. During this phase, sub-wise, difficult life conditions frustrate basic human needs. These needs can be the need for security, a feeling of control, the need for a positive identity and social connections, and of course, the need for food, water, shelter. But this alone doesn't lead to violence. The frustration of basic human needs is almost always experienced relative to some other group. In this context, a vision, an ideology, a politics, a definition of the situation, as Milgram puts it, is more likely to be offered that proposes a particular solution while excluding the status quo factors that seem to have led to the crisis. In Nazi Germany, Liberalism, democracy, Britain, France, America, and of course the Jews were all obvious targets to blame for Germany's problems, creating numerous outgroups. Because the problems were so urgent, the potential for friction and hostility towards outgroups increased. Any history of antagonism or prejudice against a particular outgroup like the Jews is more likely to be drawn upon. Sometimes in-grouping and outgrouping manifests itself in simple disagreements. Other times it can escalate so that outgroups become enemies. Sometimes the outgroup can be depicted as evil and occasionally the relationship can become a zero-sum game, a matter of survival. It's either us or them. In this context, everything good can be associated with the in-group and everything bad with the out. When a person perceives themselves as a victim and a prisoner as an aggressor in a war of survival, and then we combine this with the pressure to conform and to submit to authority, the probability for murder increases. In Nazi Germany, everything was made to fit this formula. The Jews were not only meant to be everything that was wrong within Germany, but were a powerful aggressor attacking the country on all sides.
entire academic works were dedicated to associating Jews with Germany's enemies. Nazi historians like Peter Aldag wrote histories like The Jews in England. The film Why War with Stalin argued that the war was a preemptive defensive battle to stop the Bolshevik extermination of Germany. It was a conspiracy of Jews and Democrats, Bolsheviks and reactionaries with a goal to plunge Germany into powerlessness and suffering. A 1941 headline of Der Volkisch Beobachter, the Nazi Party newspaper, declared that Roosevelt's main tool of Jewish Freemasonry, sensational documents, reveals connections of the warmonger with the international clique, where Roosevelt's Hebraic hatred of Germany comes from. It published a so-called secret photo of Roosevelt with Jewish Freemasons. Another story in 1942, titled The Mask Falls, featured a photo with Roosevelt and his advisor. Each advisor left is a Jew, and when Churchill left him and suffered corruption to his government, it became a sign of the Bolshevik government. The same year, Goebbels wrote an essay entitled Limited, informed readers that Jews were masters in deception. Adjusting to their grinding, hiding in plain sight. The Jew, Gerbil's wrote, is the master of the lie. Photo collection, Jews in the USA, was published that included evidence of this mimicry. Jews looking supposedly naughty and blending in when necessary, juxtaposed with photos that depicted Jews with so called stereotypical Jewish features. Once a global conspiracy involving millions of people was defined, evidence can always be found to justify it. In 1941, for example, Theodore Kaufman, an unknown Jewish-American author, published a book titled Germany Must Perish. The Nazis depicted Kaufman as being an influential figure in America and in the American government despite publishers refusing to publish the work, which, when published by Kaufman himself, was universally headline in the Volkish Beobachter, inexplicably linked the to the foreign policy of the American government, announcing that Roosevelt demands pluralization of the German people. The Germans are supposed to be exterminated in two generations. The book was even published in pamphlets distributed throughout Germany. Kaufmann's face was often used in propaganda. The caption under a photo of Kaufmann in the book Jews in the USA read, He demands the complete extermination of the German people. By the end of 1941, Goebbels declared in a radio broadcast that the historical guilt of world jury for the outbreak and expansion of this war has been so extensively demonstrated that there is no need to waste any more words on it. The Jews wanted their war, and now they have it. And in his article, The Jews Are Guilty, Goebbels wrote that all Jews, by virtue of their birth and their race, are part of an international conspiracy against National Socialist Germany. If we lose the war, these harmless-looking Jewish chaps would suddenly become raging wolves. They would attack our women and children to carry out revenge. The Jews are a parasitic race that feeds like a foul fungus on the cultures of healthy but ignorant people. There is only one effective measure. Cut them out. The Jews were responsible for every German soldier's death, he wrote, and they were enemy agents within the country. 
they were being gradually exterminated for a war that they had brought on themselves. They were also continually associated with laziness, dirtiness and exploitation. An early Nazi manifesto, for example, asked, who are we fighting against? The answer is against all those who create no value, who make high profits without any mental or physical work. We fight against the drones in the state. These are mostly Jews. They live a good life. They reap where they have not sown. 